one of the things we have to realize is that we are made up of microbes, right? We we would cease to exist without microbes because microbes afford us the vast majority of our biochemical function as humans. Hey there, welcome to the Biohacker Babes podcast. We are your hosts. I'm Renee, a certified nutritional consultant with a master's degree in nutrition. What's up? And I'm Lauren, functional diagnostic nutrition practitioner and Czech movement specialist. We're sisters and we're joining forces to empower you to become your own biohacker and upgrade your life. Our mission is to provide actionable steps so you can optimize your health, strengthen your intuition, and support your body's natural healing abilities. Because life is too short to not feel your best every single day. Thank you for joining us and welcome to the show. Welcome to episode 223 of the Biohacker Babes. My name is Lauren and I am tuning in from Maryland today, joined by my sister across the country, Renee Bells in Las Vegas. Hello. Hello. Hi. And I am on cloud nine times 1 million. You all do not even know what is about to hit you. Endless information and just so, so important. It's so relevant. It is so pertinent. It applies to everyone. We are talking to Kiran Krishnan today. We're going to talk about gut health, the gut-brain axis, leaky gut dysbiosis, our really kind of messed up relationship to microbes and bacteria in the world. There were so many myths and misunderstandings and uh, just a lot of nonsense in this world. And Kiran is the person to set this all straight. So just so much to look forward to in this episode. Yeah. I'm thinking back to when we first met him. Lauren, I don't know if you remember. I want to say it was like 2016 or 2017. Remember, he had this booth, this kind of small booth in the back of A4M, and he's talking about spore-based probiotics. And we were like, what is this? You know, And now all these years later, he tends to have the biggest booth at A4M. And I mean, just endless, endless knowledge. And I think my big takeaway from this episode, which I really appreciated, was how much we can do and take control of and to not always be fearful, especially of things like the glyphosate and the pesticides, because I, I like to go out. I like to eat out at restaurants and can't always control what the kitchen is putting in there. And um, so I appreciate how much we can do to own our terrain, I guess I would say. So uh, yeah. get it, get a notepad out. I'm I have like three pages of notes over here. <laughs> and five Scribble or six. Uh huh. Yeah. So definitely take some notes. Yeah. If you've had I, what I'm just going to go ahead boldly di- label as a dysfunctional relationship with microbes. If you're someone that like incessantly washes their hands, is afraid of being dirty. This is for you. If you struggle with anxiety, depression, this is for you. If you struggle with any gut issues, poor digestive function, bloating, motility issues, IBS, IBD, this is for you. If you, if you're I mean, stressed I could, out, if you if feel stressed. like you don't handle stress well, this is for you. Yes. And he gets quite scientific because of course, like microbes have the longest words and letters, but there's a lot of really, as Renee said, really actionable items such as hugging, going into nature, picking up some twigs and some leaves, uh, cuddling with your dog, not just for the microbes, but also for oxytocin. There's so many actionable items. So hang in there. This is quite a ride. It's a little bit of a longer episode, but it is worth, I think, every second. Definitely. 
All right, more about Karan. He is a research microbiologist and a health and wellness expert who aims to make complex information understandable to all. He has founded a number of successful health and supplement companies over the last 15 years, including co-founding and leading Microbiome Labs, the preeminent microbiome therapeutics focused brand among healthcare professionals. He is currently a co-founder and partner in three other companies that aim to revolutionize wellness care. He has conducted and published several research studies in scientific journals, has published chapters in scientific textbooks, references, books, and has global patents and is a sought after speaker on human health and the microbiome. He is just endlessly impressive. Are we ready? Yeah, let's jump in. Okay. Welcome, Karan, to the Biohacker Babes podcast. Finally, you're here. We're so excited. I can't wait to get into all of this. I've been wanting to talk to both of you. So thank you so much for having me. Yes, of course. It is such a pleasure. So we're going to rapid fire pick your brain today because you are like an insane wealth of information. So we're going to get through as much as we can. But I think to drop in, there's so much confusion around microbes in our modern world. I feel like people are still kind of proposing germ theory. There's still high dose refrigerated probiotics in store shelves or hyper sanitizing our bodies, everything around us. And we really need your voice to be heard. You have such a, a thoughtful and well-validated perspective on how we should be interacting and relating to bacteria at yeah. large. From a selfish perspective, I feel what I'm experiencing a lot with clients is a lot of gut dysfunction because of the stress component. And this may be new for people, but I would love to drop in on the gut brain axis and how stress is really affecting our guts. Yeah, absolutely. So um, we'll tackle the, the gut brain axis and stress second. Um, and it's it's probably one of the most prevalent and important topics to talk about, especially coming off this pandemic where things kind of got worse for people, for a lot of people, both socially, economically, mentally, and so on. Um, and then, you know, the, the microbiome has also suffered through that um, era. And, and that has actually perpetuated more of the stress and anxiety and depression. We'll explain how that's all connected. Um, but to give, give people the proper context about microbes, one of the things we have to realize is that we are made up of microbes, right? We we would cease to exist without microbes because microbes afford us the vast majority of our biochemical function as humans. You know, we are about 100 to 150 times more microbial DNA in our system than human DNA, right? So we, we don't have enough genes in our own chromosomes to conduct like 80% of the things that we need to conduct every day in order to function as humans, right? So we've got about 22, 23,000 functional genes in our chromosomes, and an earthworm has about 32,000. So we're not that sophisticated when it, when it comes down to it, but we have over two and a half million microbial genes that affords us all of this complexity of biochemistry and all that that occurs in the human system. So we need microbes to survive. We are actually something called a holobiont. A holobiont is a super organism, which means that we are a collective of organisms that have to work together in order to perpetuate the health of the whole, right? We are a walking, talking ecosystem, a rainforest, if you will. So we are made up of microbes. We are largely dependent on microbes for function. And then we've put ourselves in an antimicrobial world, right? So the world we've built is an anti-human world, essentially. Everything around us kills bacteria or harms bacteria or microbes in some way or the other. 
including some of the uh, things you had mentioned early on, right? Some of the theories and germ theory and, you know, hypersanitization, this fear around microbes all the time. Um, to put it in perspective for people, I was uh, interviewed for an article in U.S. News and World Report on this whole idea of germ theory. This was uh, probably about four years ago. And for that article, I did a calculation on what percentage of microbes discovered are actually harmful to us, right? And my best uh, guess at, at looking at the data that's that's available to us so far is that 0.1% at the most of microbes discovered are harmful to us, which means that 99.9% are either beneficial or benign to us, right? And so that is really telling because we get obsessed about that potential harm of the 0.1%. And in the process of that obsession and all the things we do as a result of it, we're harming the 99.9% when the best way to control the 0.1% is to allow the 99.9% to flourish. Right, microbes control microbes better than we can, and so having a balanced ecosystem is really the way of controlling microbial activity. And we see that all over our guts, our homes, our skin, everywhere in our bodies. Anytime the microbial system gets imbalanced because of an extrinsic force that we enter into the system, like an antibiotic or um, antimicrobial of some sort, or pesticide or herbicide, you know, chemical of some sort that harms the ecosystem. Anytime we introduce something like that, we start to create an imbalance of microbes that allows opportunist uh, microbes that are in that 0.1% category that are good and, uh, and utilize opportunities to proliferate, they will proliferate. And when they proliferate, they screw up the balance of the system. Right. And then everything, our metabolic system, our immune system, our neurological system, endocrine system, all of those systems that depend on microbes in some way or the other, all of those systems start to falter. So at the end of the day, we have to be incredibly cognizant that we are a walking, talking rainforest and we have to make choices each day of things we choose not to do that we know will harm the microbes and, and choose things to do that we know are beneficial for the microbes. We have to do those every single day or we're going to end up in a disease state, right? And, and hence the, the prevalence of disease states that we have today because of the antimicrobial world we live in. Mm, yeah, so well. So what exactly would a harmful microbe be? Like, yeah. So there's two categories of harmful microbes. Um, there are opportunistic pathogens, and then there are what we would call like a direct pathogen, um, uh, so or primary pathogen, right? So an opportunistic pathogen is one that's kind of weak, and so it doesn't express its pathogen uh, genes or its virulence genes, if you will, its toxin productions and so on, until the right opportunity presents itself, right? Meaning that the population in the area that competes with it is decimated somehow. The immune system in the host is somehow, um, you know, compromised. And this is where stress comes in. And I'll, I'll tie that in for people as well. So in those cases, these opportunistic pathogens go, hey, this is the right opportunity. This is where we can grow and proliferate. They start expressing their virulence factors. They start growing and trying to uh, populate rapidly. So that's the opportunistic pathogens. Now, many of those opportunistic pathogens can actually be beneficial when they're under control, right? Given the opportunity, they will become a problem. But when, when the opportunity doesn't exist, when they are in a balanced ecosystem, they can actually provide some benefit to the host. Then the other ones are direct pathogens. So these are organisms that all they know is to infect, right? And, and that's all they do. They don't have the, the ability to not infect or not attempt 
to infect the host. These are normally the kind of pathogens that come in from the outside, right? They're not often found as commensal within the system. These are normally things that you get as a communicable disease, right? Uh, Black plague, for example, is a great example of that, right? That's a direct pathogen that no matter what the terrain looks like, no matter what the opportunity looks like, no matter what the immune system is doing, it's going to try to infect and it's gonna make most people sick. Um, The opportunists, typically live as part of your commensal flora, and then within a given opportunity, they will express their virulence factors. So the the direct pathogens, right, the communicable diseases, those are pretty rare, actually. Viral versions of it are much more common, so colds and flus, those are much more common, but pathogens, bacterial pathogens that are passed in between people uh, outside of STDs, known STDs, they are relatively rare for most people, right? Uh, Most people, if they end up with an infection or they end up with an illness of some sort, it's because an opportunist has seen the opportunity to infect. Like if you get, you know, um, uh, C. diff, for example, right? You're not necessarily getting C. diff from the outside. C. diff is there in your gut. It just happens to overgrow because of the antibiotic use and the decimation of the microbes around it. That's its opportunity to proliferate. Right. And a lot of times, even things like menin- bacterial meningitis or, or um, you know, other infections in the gut or in the body or in the skin can be opportunistic. Rarely is it a direct pathogen that you get from somebody else. OK, so okay. the opportunity really is to make sure that we have enough commensals, that our opportunistic bacteria is in balance so that when we are exposed to the direct pathogen, we have a better chance of reestablishing homeostasis more quickly because i think there's a lot of fear around like oh my gosh that'll be the end if i'm exposed to that but we know the healthier the terrain the better the the chance of a of positive outcome is that correct that's right and and i think people underestimate how frequently they are exposed to things that could make them sick right um whether it's your own pathogens within your body that are trying to proliferate um, or it is something from the outside, especially viruses and things like that. Um, it, the, it's exactly right the way you said it. It's a, it's about having an ecosystem that's well-balanced, that has a high degree of competition. In most ecosystems, the higher the degree of competition, the more stable the ecosystem is. And then that ecosystem also affords the highest functionality to your immune system because your immune system is actually quite ignorant when it comes to understanding what it should be doing within the within your system right so think of your immune system as like a army that is that has all the equipment it has all the tanks and missiles and guns and whatnot but it has no general it has no plan it doesn't know who the enemy is who who the friend or foe is right um it gets a lot of that direction from the microbiome and that comes from a diverse commensal, um, stable microbiome. There's crosstalk between the immune system and the microbiome where the immune system learns what the stable ecosystem looks like. And then when that stable ecosystem gets disrupted, that's when the immune system knows how to act, right? Because we don't want the immune system attacking our our bugs all the time, right? We're, We're loaded with microbes, right? We have more microbes than we have human cells. In fact, if you look at immune cells, we're almost 200,000 to one is the ratio of microbes to immune cells. So you don't want that immune cell going haywire, attacking all the microbes all the time. We would be sick all the time. We wouldn't live very long. So there's this really important conversation between the beneficial commensal microbes in the immune system to dictate to the immune system what is the balanced 
normal uh, ecosystem, and then when it gets disrupted, that the immune system needs to act, right? So there's a there's a twofold protection there when you have a balanced ecosystem. It's that the microbes themselves will protect you against invading organisms, and then it also affords the immune system the capability to protect you. So that gives you what my favorite term is in health is resilience, right? And so this is why two people can be exposed to the same thing at the same level, and one person may get sick and the other doesn't. The person that doesn't has resilience. Um, it's not that they're immune to some degree from that infection. It's that their immune system and their microbiome working together has neutralized that threat pretty quickly. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Resilience is one of my favorite words too. I'm like always like, how do I get greater resilience? Yeah. That's um, my whole health goal, right? People always ask me like, what is your health goal? My health goal is resilience because I want to make 20% bad decisions. Right. And to me, I'm like, I, you know, I, it's an 80 20 rule all the time. I don't want to have to be healthy by making 100% good decisions because there's a lot of living that happens in that 20%. Right. Um, and sure. so, right. And I want to be exposed to things. I want to have bad meals. I want to go out and have drinks with friends and be able and be fine the next day and bounce right back. Right. Like we used to when we were younger. Um, I want that to me is like healthy aging is the ability to, um, to recover from things that you probably shouldn't be doing, um, but you're living, right? And and you're feeling good and you're healthy most of the time. And sometimes you make the wrong decision, but you can bounce back from it. So that resilience is important. And your microbiome affords you almost more resilience than almost anything else because of all of its capacity for biochemical function, right? We only have a certain number of things that we can conduct from a biochemistry perspective to detoxify toxins that have come in, for example, right? Uh, neutralize things to uh, excrete things and all that. Our body counts on our microbiome to assist in many of those functions. So if you have a healthy microbiome, you're going to be able to bounce back from almost anything that you do. Mm. Yeah, like yeah. from karaoke in Vegas and Dancing on tables with Chris. Exactly. That's the new, that's the present goal for December. It <laughs> is, yes. Build up that resilience till uh, Friday, Saturday night in Vegas, right? Yeah. We yeah. need to live there, right? We're not gonna go and uh sit in a in a in a corner and meditate all night. We're gonna be out in Vegas, right? We're gonna be having fun, but we also don't want to have to pay the price the next day. And we want our bodies to bounce back to what it was before that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so for people that are, you know, hyper sanitizing and, uh, I don't know, doing all the right things, I don't even know what that means, but what are some common mistakes that we're making just day to day from like bringing in the wrong inputs and avoiding, uh, the bad? Yeah. Um, so people can think about it in just two very simple categories. Uh, let's, let's talk about the first one where you're doing things that we know are harming the microbes, right? And, and these are like small incremental harms, right? But they add up over time. And, and so it's not like taking a massive course of antibiotics at once and you're creating a lot of disruption in a short amount of time. These are things that occur at small levels over time and accumulate into a disrupted ecosystem. Um, so number one is, like you mentioned, over-sanitization of your home. Um, it's pretty clear now from a couple of big studies that having a, a resilient or diversified biome in your home has a huge impact on your immune health and 
allergies and resilience to viral infections and so on, right? So there's been some studies on houses that have dogs, for example, and, and the kids tend to have lower incidence rate of immune dysfunctions, viral infections, and so on, because the diversity of the microbes in the household is higher because the dogs go out and bring all those microbes in. Um, there are studies like the, the Finnish allergy study. Uh, the Finnish allergy study was a very fascinating study where they looked at a town in Finland and then a town geographically close to Finland in Russia that had dramatically different rates of allergies and asthma and all that. The town in Finland had very high asthma and allergy rates versus Russia was very low. Now, geographically, they're in very similar regions. So the big question was why, right? And so what they really discovered was that the level of sterilization in Finland, that whole squeaky clean lemon scent, sterilize everything, right? They're using this, the cleaners that kill 99.9% .9 of all microbes. That is practice in Finland and that's culturally what's clean. Russia, they didn't have the same thing. And they also spent a lot more time with the doors and windows open, so more outside air is coming in. So the biome in the home is dramatically different than that in Finland. And that had a huge uh, impact on the uh, immune system of the kids. Now, what was cool about it is they went one step further in Finland. So they said, okay, um, let's, we have, you know, nationalized daycare centers. So these are government owned daycare centers that they provide daycare for, for, uh, working parents. And they said in half the daycare centers, we're going to create mud piles or dirt piles, not mud, uh, dirt piles that the, that the kids are going to have to play in X number of times a week. And then we're going to follow these kids compared to kids that don't play in the dirt. And over a few year period, they saw that the ones that played in the dirt had dramatically lower incidence rates of allergies and asthma, right? So simple solution, just playing in the dirt a little bit, exposing yourself to more microbes, right? So that over-sterilization in your home has a negative effect over time. Um, and if you're somebody that's dealing with things like an autoimmune disease or um, a severe hormone imbalance, especially something like an estrogen dominance, because you're not clearing estrogen effectively enough, right? And the microbiome is really involved in clearing estrogen properly. Um, or you're dealing with viral or sensitivity issues, right? Hypersensitivities, uh, food sensitivities, skin rashes, things like that. All of those things will be impacted by what your home biome looks like. So it becomes really important that you don't necessarily sterilize every surface in your home, right? Very few surfaces in your home need to be sterilized. You know, maybe you want to sterilize your toilet from time to time, or maybe the shower if there's some mildew growing, uh, or if you bring home a raw chicken and you get raw chicken juice on the counter, by all means, sterilize it because there could be some salmonella there. But outside of that, like my desk and dressers and most contact surfaces in my house is cleaned by with water and maybe a drop or two of essential oil just for a little bit of smell. And it's just wiped down, right? We don't sterilize it. We also, when the weather permits, I'm in the Midwest, so there's a lot, many months a year where the weather doesn't permit, but we keep the windows uh, open, you know, and get some uh, fresh uh, outside air and outside microbes in. We have a couple of dogs that certainly helps as well. So these are the things that you can do to start to increase your exposure levels um, and reduce the lack of exposure, right? So that's a, a double whammy. The second thing that people do, I think, that can be very harmful over time is the use of personal care products that are just loaded with ingredients that have never been tested on the microbiome, right? And many of those are preservatives and all that to maintain the shelf life and stability of the product. So a mission of my, my personal mission has been over the last, um, I'd say seven, eight years is to slowly clean up all my personal care products, right? And it can be daunting for people to go look at their cabinet and go, oh my God, I got to find clean versions of all this stuff. 
take one thing at a time, right? So I started with deodorant. And I, I had to go through probably eight, nine different types of natural clean deodorant to find one that works for me. There was times where I would stink and people would actually be like, what's, did you shower? I'm like, no, I'm trying a deodorant and it's obviously not working, right? And so <laughs> I went through many iterations and I found one that works for me. Then I went to lotions, right? I have to use a lot of lotions. My skin will get dry if I don't. And so I try to find the cleanest lotion, the cleanest soaps, even with the soaps, like I don't necessarily sterilize and clean my body every single day, you know, and there are times when I'm not going out or anything like that. And even if I'm sitting in my sauna or working out, I may just jump in the shower and just rinse with water and not necessarily soap and clean everything, right? Um, you want to build up a little bit of a microbial ecosystem on your body. Uh, even in your oral, assuming you have a healthy oral microbiome, one of the things I do is I, I don't brush my teeth when I first wake up in the morning right? I actually wait for a little bit. I may even have my coffee. Often I'll try to get my workout in in the morning, even before brushing my teeth, because if you've ever talked to Nathan Bryant, for example, right? A lot of the nitric oxide that your body has is produced by the microbes in your mouth, especially on your tongue throughout that, that grow in large amounts throughout the night. And so when you wake up in the morning, you're actually producing a lot of nitric oxide. And that nitric oxide is really beneficial for your workouts and getting yourself up and getting perfused and getting blood to the brain and the heart and all these amazing areas. One of the things he has said is that if you go into the bathroom when you work out, uh, sorry, when you wake up and you use mouthwash, sterilizing mouthwash, and then you go work out, it like negates the majority of the benefit of the workout, right? Because you're not yeah. getting the vascular dilation and all that, right? So, and I've actually found I'll sometimes use like a nitrite lozenge on top of that. And I've been experimenting over the last year where, you know, I, I would do like a week's worth of workouts. I'd wake up in the morning, brush my teeth like normal habit, and then go work out versus waking up, not doing that, having some coffee. I'd have coffee in both uh, cases and then going and working out before brushing my teeth. And I do find a difference, a noticeable difference in energy level and the number of reps I can do sometimes in like the pump you get, right? Your vascularization, things like that when you're lifting. And I feel the difference. And then a couple hours after I've woken up, that's when I finally go and I brush my teeth. And it's actually good because I'm brushing my teeth after I've had my coffee, which can stain your teeth to begin with, right? And so you're cleaning it up anyway. Um, so a couple of little things like that. And then the other thing I would say for people is uh, and um, to get outside as much as they can, right? So be prescriptive about being in the outside environment. That is the most natural way in which we interact with uh, microorganisms. And those have a huge impact on our overall health. So one of the things I tell people is like, be prescriptive, meaning prescribe yourself two, three times a week, 30 minutes at a time, you're going out into a natural environment. It's, it's fine if you're in your front porch or it's better than being indoor, but try to go out on a hike or the beach if you're on the coast or somewhere that's an undisturbed natural environment. And one of the most natural and beneficial things you can do in that environment is touch and feel things, right? So humans are tend to be curious. If you imagine a kid going on a hike, he or she's going to be picking up sticks and rocks and feeling leaves and all that stuff, right? So allow some of that curiosity to, to, to go work within you, touch things, right? Natural things, and then sit down and eat in that environment. And that is one of the most beneficial things you can do in terms of a natural interaction with the microbes out there, right? So that's what our ancestors did. They all sat in dirt and ate amongst the environment. That's a big way of gaining microbes 
expose microbial exposure into your system, right? And then uh, one of the key things is managing stress. Um, there was a 2015 publication in the Frontiers of Immunology that showed that stress-induced dysbiosis that leads to leaky gut was the number one cause of mortality and morbidity worldwide. It's a number one killer worldwide, right? It's the biggest source of chronic low-grade inflammation. And we know that chronic low-grade inflammation dramatically increases the risk for virtually every chronic disease that we can think of. Uh, virtually everyone listening to this, if they're dealing with some health issue, especially if it's a chronic issue, not like an acute issue that just came up and they'll be better in a couple of days. If it's a chronic issue, chronic low-grade inflammation is part of the pathology of that issue. And it's likely your gut that's driving the biggest source of that chronic low-grade inflammation, right? So stress management becomes really important, but stress management is a little more complicated than we normally talk about. Hey there, all you sleep seekers, night owls, and restless sleepers. Are you tired of tossing and turning at night? Struggling to catch those elusive Zs? Well, we've got some exciting news for you. Introducing Tro-Z by Transcriptions, your ticket to the most rejuvenating sleep imaginable. Tro-Z is not your ordinary sleep aid. It's a precision-dosed, pharmaceutical-grade, and physician-formulated buccal trochee that's here to transform your nights. It's carefully calibrated to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up feeling revitalized and ready to conquer your day. I have personally tested this sleep trochee, and oh my goodness, I experienced the deepest night of sleep. So what's the secret behind Trozia's sleep-inducing magic? Well, let's dive into some of the incredible ingredients that make it all possible. And I apologize if I don't pronounce all of them correctly, because these are some really, truly novel ingredients. All right. So first up, we have honokiol, which aids sleep through GABA receptors, ensuring you can relax and turn your busy brain off. Musimol, derived from the fly agaric mushroom, is next on the list. But don't worry, in the tiny doses they're using, there are no psychedelic effects, just pure sleep magic. CBN and CBD, you've probably heard of. These sleep titans make an appearance as well. And these powerhouses play a crucial role in the GABA and endocannabinoid systems, decreasing stress and optimizing sleep architecture. 5-HTP is here to ensure you keep sleeping soundly. It supports serotonin and maintains sleep, guaranteeing you're well-rested for the day ahead. No more groggy mornings. <laughs> Adenosine, a champion of sleep induction, this steps in to help as well. If you've ever struggled to close those eyelids, especially after a cup of coffee, this ingredient is here to your rescue. And don't forget about cordycipin, derived from a mushroom. This versatile compound improves deep restorative sleep and enhances your immune system. Last but not least, we have the sleep superstar melatonin. It helps you fall into a deep slumber and stay there. So no more clock watching at 3 a.m. Each ingredient of Trozy was meticulously selected, not just for its individual merit, but also for how they synergize, really ensuring you're getting the most rejuvenating sleep imaginable. So if you are ready to bid farewell to sleepless nights and embrace the rejuvenating power of Tro-Z, head over to troscriptions.com and use discount code biohackerbabes to save 10%. Your dreamy nights and energetic mornings are just a trokey away. Yeah. Right. There's no point on that one. That's that's a that's a big commitment there. Yeah, it is. Yeah, to unpack it, right? Because yeah. we've we've often relegated stress management to practices that we can do, and and the hope is that if you do those practices, you should have 
a balanced outlook or response to things around you, right? So for example, if you meditate, if you do mindfulness work, if you do breathing exercises, those are all good things, right? Don't don't get me wrong. Those are all things we should all be practicing to try to ground ourselves, activate the vagus nerve and so on. Um, but it goes well beyond that, right? There's, there's a physiology there that hasn't been addressed until recently. And the reason it hasn't been addressed is because we didn't know about it. Right. So there's a book that that came out, I think now seven years ago, and it, it's titled the, the Psychobiotic Revolution. Um, and it was written, it is written by a um, integrative psychiatrist uh, and, and a massive microbiome researcher. His name is Dr. Ted Dynan. Uh, he's at the APC, which is uh, the largest microbiome research institute in Cork, Ireland. Uh, and I've had the pleasure of working with him for a few years now and, and working with them on research and things like that. And uh, and then all, a lot of his colleagues as well at the APC. And, and they really coined that he coined the term psychobiotic. Um, and, and they did a lot of the initial works to, uh, to understand that there are, in fact, microbes in your gut that allow you the capability to deal with stress in a better way. Right. And it's not it's not luck necessarily. This is evolution. Right. So if you look at how the human species has has evolved, uh, one of the things that has pushed us up the evolutionary ladder and up the food chain is our ability and the, the and capacity to take in microbes and create a commensal uh, ecosystem, a highly diverse commensal ecosystem. Right. And a lot of that is based on our behavior. So I'll give you a great example of that. If you look at the animal kingdom, um, we are most genetically similar to chimpanzees, right? We are 99% genetically similar to chimpanzees, which is hard to believe that we're basically 1% difference in our genes and we're vastly different creatures, right? And yet you look at chimpanzees and you go, they're only 1% different than us in our genes. And yet their microbiomes are completely different than ours. Now, in the primate world, the micro, the, uh, the primates that we are most closely related to from a microbiome perspective are actually baboons. So we're much more closer to baboons in our microbiome perspective than chimpanzees. Why is that? Well, baboons, through the course of evolution, ended up working in prides, right? So they work in little communities and they became nomadic. Right. So chimpanzees tend to stay in one region. They stay in a lush vegetation area. They live up in trees a lot and all that. Baboons came down to the ground and they walk on the ground a lot and they became nomadic. They spread in ecosystems. They forage, they gather, they hunt, right? They dig for termites. They dig for water. They eat roots, fruits, tubers, everything. And they hunt, right? They also have canines. So they do kill animals and they eat them. And so because of that diversity of behavior, their microbiomes became quite diverse and their microbiomes are more similar to ours than our closest genetic relative, which is a chimpanzee. So the diversity of our microbiomes has added to the selection process of which humans made it through the course of evolutions and which ones didn't. The ones that develop, for example, high levels of, um, of uh, a particular lactobacillus strain uh, that increases your oxytocin levels, right? So this, this is a, a ruteri, lactobacillus ruteri, which increases oxytocin levels, which is a love hormone, right? It improves empathy and bonding and all that. Those individuals tended to do really well because it gave them community structure, 
right? It caused them to care about themselves as much as they care about their neighbor. It gave them uh, family and community bonding capability. And then a family or community is going to survive much better than a single individual, right? And so those individuals did better. And then that ecosystem propagated through evolution because that was a more favorable adaptation. The same way the individuals that develop microbes in the gut that control your gut-brain axis and managed how your body responded to stress, those individuals propagated better through the course of evolution because the world was a very stressful place. There was a lot of fight or flight response happening, lots of predators and enemies trying to kill you. The people that could manage the stress well and did not get ill from it were the people that propagated and did well. Now we come to the modern age where we don't have the same drivers of, of uh, you know danger and death and all that. We're not being hunted by predators and most of us are relatively safe where we are, right? We don't have the same stressors. Um, those organisms are still trying to hang on in our system, but we don't have to select for them, right? You can be a perfectly anxious, depressed individual band-aid yourself with medication and still have kids and have a family and propagate and then they can have kids and have families so there's no natural selection anymore for individuals that have the eco ecological confirmation to have resilience against stress and so this is why we're losing that that natural psychobiotic that helps us balance mood issues and this is part of the reason why anxiety depression mood disorders are at such high levels in our society is we don't have a natural selection pressure to select for individuals that have that ecosystem given at the same time we're also destroying our ecosystem with lots of overuse of antibiotics and all that so you put those things together and what's happening is you're creating humans with less and less resilience to exist in the world that we exist in, right? On top of that, our world is bombarding us with stimuli in, in, a, in a way that the body is actually not yet adapted to deal with, right? Where the megabytes of information that we're exposed to every millisecond of every day is far more than we've ever been exposed to in the course of human evolution. So our brain is still trying to figure out how to deal with all of that neurological stimulation. At the same time, we don't have a way of balancing our neurological system effectively because we're missing the microbes. And when we talk about how the microbes balance your neurological system, it becomes clear that if you don't have them, you're at significant risk, right? So that's the, the advent of discovery of psychobiotics. Um, and I think that's probably going to be one of the biggest revolutions in modern medicine because as I mentioned, stress and stress-related uh, endotoxemia and leaky gut and inflammation is the number one killer worldwide. It's the number one driver of chronic disease. So if we can handle that part, think about all the lives we can save, right? All the chronic disease we can stop. So it's a, it's a very, very powerful thing that's, that we're all witness to now. Hey, biohackers, are you feeling overwhelmed this holiday season? We totally get it. November and December's demands like end-of-year tasks, holiday preparations, gift shopping, family get-togethers, it can really be a relentless source of stress, although so much fun at the same time. Well, you can breathe easy because Stress Guardian is here to help you. It's the latest scientific breakthrough from Bioptimizers, the geniuses behind Magnesium Breakthrough. And it's packed with a blend of 14 adaptogenic herbs that help to regulate your stress response naturally, granting you control over your holiday stress. Think resilience here. So with daily use, Stress Guardian becomes your personal shield against seasonal tension, enhancing both your mental and physical well-being. 
So say goodbye to just surviving this holiday season. Thrive instead. To get a head start on your holiday stress, visit stressguardian.com slash biohackerbabes and make sure you use promo code biohackerbabes10 at checkout to get 10% off your order. And Bioptimizers is so confident in their products that they offer a risk-free 365-day money-back guarantee. So go ahead, discover the secret to peace on earth this holiday season. Oh my gosh, so many so many nuggets in there. I Before I don't forget, me. I just want to ask your opinion because you're the first person I've heard to say, don't brush your teeth in the morning. I'm so yeah. curious about this. I heard Paul Check say like 10, 10 plus years ago. Oh, Lauren, you're thinking the same thing. I was going to have the same question. <laughs> oh, he, he said to brush your teeth first thing when you, when you wake up before you drink water, because if you drink water, you're washing that bacteria down into your gut. But now that I'm saying it out loud, I'm not sure that makes sense. I think you change that to say just swish water in your mouth for a minute and a half. Don't necessarily use toothpaste. You definitely don't use mouthwash, but just to kind of circulate water. What thoughts yeah, on that? I, mean, I, I wouldn't, to me, that has almost no impact on like microbiome and, and health. It may be to hydrate, maybe, you know, that's about it because you're swallowing gallons of saliva all night while you're sleeping, right? So those microbes right. are proliferating, you're swallowing them anyway. And that's the most natural process that occurs. It's absolutely no issue with swallowing them. Now, you may increase issues if you're breathing them in, if you're mouth breathing, and you're breathing a lot of those oral microbes into your lungs, that can become a problem for the people that breathe through their mouth mostly at night versus their nose, right? That can be more problematic. Mm. But I, it's if you have a relatively healthy oral microbiome, meaning you don't have, you know, 10 cavities and a bunch of gum disease and all that, and your, your uh, oral cavity is relatively healthy, there is no issue with those microbes overpopulating throughout the night and then you taking advantage of them in the morning from all the nitric oxide and the other things that they produce. Um, and and for me, it, it makes a lot of sense. You just think about the course of human evolution, right? Um, even when I when I look back, because I grew up in in India, and there's lots of places in India where they live like they did still a couple thousand years ago, right? And people brush their teeth, right? But they brushed it with frayed sticks and things like that, and they understand that the mechanical abrasion of a brush-like object is what you really need. You actually don't need toothpaste. Toothpaste doesn't actually do anything in your mouth, right? Uh, when you look at this dental hygiene studies, it's all the brushing action. It's the breaking up of the plaque with the brush itself. Toothpaste is just an add-on to, to you know, make your mouth minty fresh or something. Um, and, and in fact, the fluoride idea, right? And we all know now that all the fluoride you add in toothpaste and water and all does absolutely nothing for your enamel in the mouth. In fact, it could cause more harm uh, in your in your system. And so it's that mechanical abrasion. Now, most of the people that, you know, when you, you imagine our ancestors, they'd wake up, they're not going to wake up in the hut or the cave and then go first thing in the morning and do this, right? They're waking up, they're hungry, they're thirsty, right? They're, they're, they're looking for food. They're looking for something to drink. Um, they're, you know, dealing with whatever may have happened overnight in their uh, particular area. Um, they're not thinking about brushing their teeth. And then they will do that at some point later on in the day. And I see those in the cultures that are living like more of an ancestral life. They wake up and at some point midday, they actually may clean their teeth. Um, I'm not saying right. oral hygiene is not important. I'm just saying there may be some benefit uh, to waiting a couple hours and maybe even doing your workout before you do so. And that's just a view on like 
microbes and how we have to rethink maybe some of our behaviors based on understanding microbes, right? And this is where like the whole probiotic world falls apart because so many of the probiotics were designed before we even knew what the microbiome was. And so you start to see these, um, you know, crazy products with 15, 20 strains and 100 billion, 50 billion, 200 billion CFUs. And none of that makes any sense. There's no natural benefit to any of those things, right? In fact, it can, in fact, be harmful and negate recovery to a certain degree. And that's been shown in a couple of studies now. So but now that we know better, we should be doing better. And, and we have to have the perspective of the microbes in mind when we're doing our behaviors, right? Yeah, absolutely. And our dad is a biological dentist and our mom is a holistic dental hygienist. So um, we're very familiar with the work by Weston A. Price. And yeah. they did exactly what you said. They would just have like a stick where they'd maybe pick some food out and scrape their teeth. But they had amazing health, beautiful, yeah. white, straight teeth, these wide jaws. And jaws, yeah. They weren't using fluoride and mouthwash. And yeah. That. So <laughs> that, that's, you know, and I use myself as an example of that, right? So um, I grew up in, in India and Malaysia. And yes, we brush our teeth, but not the way we do here and not sterilizing our mouths. Um, you know, I've never had braces. I've had all my teeth come in. I've had all my wisdom teeth. You know, I'm uh, 47 now. I I think I've been a dentist twice in my life. Um, and the last time I went was like 10 years ago, and it had been 15 years since I'd been a dentist at that point. And I've never had a cavity. My mom is 72. She's never had a cavity. She goes every six months. She's a little more obsessed with like tracking that thing. Um, but, you know, we we have a natural microbiome in the mouth that prevents carie forming and all that. And in fact, for me, uh, what I find is that if I'm if I'm brushing too much, so if I brush morning and evening, right, two, three weeks in a row, my mouth actually hurts a little bit. Right. So my gums become more sensitive and, and my mouth actually feels uncomfortable. And one of the ways to overcome that for me is to go like a day without brushing. If I go a day without brushing and allow the microbes to settle back in and, and recolonize properly, then all of a sudden everything feels just right. And then I can go back to regular once a day type of brushing. I've probably brushed in the evening maybe two dozen times in my entire life. Uh, I've only brushed wow. in sometime in the morning. Right. Uh, and I, I think I've flossed maybe twice in my life. And um, last time, like I mentioned, I went to the dentist and they said, maybe come back in five years. I don't know. They're like, there's no buildup on your teeth. There's no tartar. There's no, no cavities. The enamel looks strong. Your bones are strong. So maybe come back in five years. Right. And uh, and I hadn't been I hadn't been there in 15 years. They actually what was funny about it is um i was i was like forced to go they were like uh you know you got to go see the dentist and so uh the dentist knew i was coming in and i hadn't been to a dentist in like 15 years and they were all prep they had like slotted out a two-hour period they were like he's gonna be messed up we're gonna get all the tools out and pull everything Scaling and exactly yeah. yeah we're gonna have to they had like three hygienists ready to go with cleaning because the one arms are gonna get sore and stuff and then i went in and they were like sure you haven't had a cleaning in like very recently i'm like it's been 15 years and they're like all right i guess go and do whatever you're doing and you know to me i'm like i my i fortunately have a healthy and not everyone's born with a healthy microbiome in the mouth and so some people will have to struggle with it but i would say if you are if you have a relatively healthy microbiome in the mouth meaning you haven't had lots of trouble throughout your life 
then you should do things to make sure you're enhancing that microbiome. Um, you know, of course, drinking sugary things and eating candy, all that kind of stuff will damage it. Um, but allow the proliferation of the good microbes. But that's a that's an idea in general for every part of your body. The same thing with the skin, the same thing with your gut microbiome, right? What are the things that we are doing that negate them? Uh, and what other things we should be doing to support their their growth and proliferation because they're here for us, right? They're part of our evolution. Yeah, we are bacteria. Yeah, you're turning up so many light bulbs in my brain and I'm really excited mom and dad to hear your thoughts. But I'm just thinking I used to get a lot of cavities, but that's back when I was a stress ball and hyper sanitizing. Now I, you know, I welcome my dog into my bed. You know, people think I'm crazy. It's like New York City paws coming under my sheets. But like, I don't get as sick as often. I haven't had a cavity in a while. And our, you know, my, our mom says this a lot, like nutrition and the gut is so big when it comes to what's happening in the mouth. But the stress component, even just stressing about like cleaning, yeah. being so afraid, you know, I eat my berries without washing them now, but other than those like emotional stressors in relation to avoiding microbes, what about some other like environmental stressors like glyphosate, gluten, things that are very easily sneaking into our diets, even if we think we're avoiding them? Yeah. Um, so I would say, you know, glyphosate is one of those things. Uh, and it's really the, the commercial version roundup. Um, we published a study, um, I think it was end of 2022, um, that uh, it was on a it was on a pediatric gut microbiome and the effect of glyphosate exposure at the level that's acceptable in foods like Cheerios, for example, right? So this is an EPA safe level of, of glyphosate exposure. Um, we've, we've done a number of studies on the Shime model. So it's a mechanical GI tract that has basically the stomach all the way to the distal colon. It's got a mucosa layer and all that, and you inoculate it with the real subject's microbiome, and you stabilize the microbiome over a three-week period, and then you feed the system food like in normal GI tract, right? So, and then you can study what happens to the microbiome based on whatever substrate you put in there. So using that system, we took a pristine three-year-old's microbiome, and this three-year-old was um, had a beautifully diverse microbiome with high keystone species, really high production of short-chain fatty acids, almost no gas production, just a beautiful microbiome. She was uh, vaginal born. She was breastfed over a year. She hadn't had a single vaccine uh, at that point. She hadn't had a single course of antibiotics you know, a kid that plays outside in the dirt and all that. I think it was a, a kid from northern region of Belgium. Um, and so we took this beautiful microbiome, inoculated it into the systems, in dual systems. And then we started introducing with the food we were feeding the system, the, the EPA safe levels of glyphosate and then of the commercial version Roundup, right? So we took the, uh, the molecule glyphosate itself as a purified molecule. What we found it after three weeks of exposure to this, uh, to that level of Roundup and glyphosate is that the glyphosate itself had minimal impact on the microbiome. But the Roundup, the commercial version with all the adjuvants that are added to it had devastating effects on the microbiome. This pristine microbiome now looked like that of someone with IBD with inflammatory bowel disease, right? This microbiome was now producing more ammonia gas than anything else. This microbiome, that, which had high keystone species, now had significant reduction in keystone species and was not producing short-chain fatty acids anywhere close to the same level, but in, instead was producing branched-chain amino uh, fatty acids, which are very inflammatory. So it was like, it looked like an inflammatory bowel disease signature. 
and it was a pristine microbiome just three year, three day, sorry, three weeks before that, right? So that so that exemplifies over time what can happen to a microbiome if you're getting exposure to this kind of pesticide and herbicide. Um, and the problem with the with a pesticide like that is it it selectively kills beneficial bacteria. Right. There are lots of opportunistic pathogens that have overcome the effect of glyphosate. And, and so they do well in the presence of glyphosate when there's a lot of commensals that are highly sensitive to it. Right. And so small doses of it every single day will create a selective pressure that allows the propagation of the pathogens rather than the commensals and completely screws up the ecosystem. Right. So I, I think that's one of the biggest. Uh, drivers that we're seeing uh, these days when it when it comes to food, then of course the lack of feeding the microbiome with with the enough diversity of foods, right? We're designed to be omnivores. We're and all the evidence points to that, right? We have lots of diet dietary camps, and people can be very um, you know activist about their diet choices. But at the end of the day, the the anthropological, the biological data, all of that stuff suggests that we are omnivores and our microbiome suggests that we're omnivores. In fact, you look at the omnivores in the animal kingdom, like the baboons, we're very close to those microbiomes. And so to maintain diversity, we're supposed to eat a large variety of things. And we eat in the Western world, a very narrow diet, right? Most people eat five, six different types of foods on a regular basis. Our ancestors ate upwards of 600 different types of foods. Right. So including the dirt that came along with the food. Right. So they got a lot of exposure. So that's another driver. Um, another one is the overuse of antibiotics. Now, even the CDC published about a decade ago that at least 50 percent of the antibiotic prescriptions are unnecessary. Right. And that's the CDC's. And I would guess that their estimate is pretty low. I would say it's probably much higher than 50 percent, which means that we're decimating the gut microbiome for no reason. Right. There are times when you need an antibiotic. There are plenty of times where I would take an antibiotic because it'll probably save my life. But at least half the time, according to the CDC, you don't need it. And that can a single seven day course of clindamycin can disrupt your microbiome dramatically for over two years. Right. It can take your microbiome, assuming you're eating right and doing the right behaviors, two years to recover from it. Right. So so we can't overstate the impact of that. And then on top of that, if our food sources, our animals that we eat are taking antibiotics, right? And we're getting any exposure to that and it's in our water system and so on. We're being exposed to these antibiotics and antimicrobials on a regular basis. So I think there's lots of things around us that are continuously impacting the microbiome um, in, a, in a negative way. And it, it's virtually impossible to eliminate all of those things. Right. Which means that we need to do the other side of it and continuously actively support the microbiome, knowing that it's continuously assaulted by things that aren't good for it. Right. So we have to enhance the behaviors that we know are going to be beneficial for the microbiome. So what, what are those? Those are um, getting outside like we talked about. Right. So spending some prescriptive time outside. Get a dog if you can and let it sleep in your bed. Uh, like Lauren loves to do, like my dogs do too. They take up actually half of my bed, both of my crazy dogs. Um, and so, right. And then, and then 
of course, every morning at 630, they're licking my face to try to wake me up. Um, and, and, and they want to sleep as close to you as they possibly can. Um, you know, and then uh, not sterilizing your home, uh, improving your home biome as much as you can, not sterilizing things like your mouth, your skin uh, on a regular basis, right? There are times when you may have to do that, but not doing that uh, on a regular basis. And then cleaning up your personal care products, um, eating a higher diversity in your diets, and then back to stress. And we could talk about how stress really devastates everything, but managing stress, right? That's a really, really yeah. key part of it all as well. Yeah. I'm curious with the glyphosate, is there anything, I know you said like we can't completely avoid it, but is, are there any steps that you personally take to try and minimize it? I mean, if we're eating out at a restaurant, we can't control that. What do we do? You can't control that. No. Um, so all the good things. Yeah. Well, yeah, but you know, you can, you can go to organic food as much as you can. If you're buying groceries, right. Um, organic will reduce your exposure to Roundup and glyphosate. We know that organic produce and all that doesn't use the same type. Now they do use pesticides as well, which is unfortunate. Um, but, but it's not Roundup that we know has a significant damage to the gut microbiome. Um, so choosing that route can be a reduction. Um, and then building resilience. So one of the aspects of the study, which I didn't mention, the first, uh, so we did a, it was like a nine week study. The first three weeks is stabilizing the microbiome, ensuring that it's working the way it's supposed to work and producing all the wonderful things it's supposed to produce. The next three weeks is still feeding the microbiome the same thing, but then we added in the Roundup and the glyphosate, right? The last three weeks was feeding the microbiome, the Roundup and the glyphosate, but then we added in the spores the uh, from the megaspore. And what we saw in the last three weeks was a lot of the damage that had occurred during that exposure time started to get reversed, right? And then there's some other independent studies showing that Bacillus subtilis can metabolize Roundup and glyphosate. Um, now, what tends to happen in the in our world is that microbes are highly adaptable, right? You can you can microbes grow in every harsh environment on this planet, right? There, there are microbes at the bottom of the ocean where there's no light, no oxygen, high pressure, methane vents um, spewing out methane. There are microbes that live and eat that stuff, right? There are microbes on um, on meteorites coming in from outer space. There are microbes in Mars, likely. And so microbes can adapt to almost any environment. And as the environment gets more and more exposure to these chemicals, a lot of environmental microbes will start adapting to being able to metabolize these chemicals and break them down into innocuous components. And so there's studies now that show that bacillus spores in the outside environment can actually metabolize and break down glyphosate to harmless components, right? And a, a, a perfect example of that is um, the Japanese population, right? If you look at the gut microbiome of the Japanese population, their microbes in their gut have picked up a gene that encodes for an enzyme called beta porphyrinase. That enzyme is very unique because it's an enzyme that's required to break down seaweed. Seaweed has a very unique structure to its carbohydrates. Humans can't make that enzyme and our normal gut microbiome doesn't make that enzyme either, but the Japanese gut does, right? And the reason the Japanese gut does is their, their gut microbiome has picked up that gene from microbes from the ocean that come in on fish. Right, because the fish microbiomes know how to break down seaweed because many fish eat seaweed. And so their microbes have that capability. The Japanese people's gut microbiome have picked up that gene 
from the from the from the fish microbes and and prov- provide this capacity of that population to digest seaweed and actually gain nutritional value from it versus if you you and I ate, ate seaweed we wouldn't get any nutritional value from it right and so that's a beauty of environmental adaptation of microbes this is part of the reason why it actually becomes even more important to get outside because if you're exposed to things like glyphosate and all that on the outside you can bet there's a microbe that has adapted to metabolizing that and maybe you'll pick up that microbe when you're outside and it can help reduce the devastation that you have in your gut one more example of that uh one of the projects that i had uh, when uh, i don't know if you guys know but we sold microbiome labs to novozymes which is a big biotech company right they have 157,000 probiotic strains in their library that was one of the things that attracted me to them as a partner one of the first projects that got kicked off with them was the, uh, seeking out a microbe in their library that could break down microplastics, right? And BPA. And so, because that's an, another toxin that's inundating our system. And as it turns out, we looked through their library of 157,000 microbes. There was a microbe that we found that has a natural capacity of breaking down BPA into innocuous substances, right? And this is a microbe that was picked up from the environment, from human uh, fecal matter and so on, that have that has probably evolved that capability over a relatively short amount of time because it's exposed to all this BPA, right? So this is the beauty of microbes and providing adaptation and resilience, but you'll only gain those benefits if you're out there and you're interacting with the microbes and you're not killing every microbe that's around you. Right. So that's the that's why I keep going back to the importance of being outside. Now, here's another thing which I'm a big fan of doing, and that's hugging and uh, interacting with people closely. Right. Uh, When I saw you guys a a few months ago, I was very eager to give you hugs, not only because you're beautiful people, but you're also probably have pretty healthy microbiomes. And I wanted to steal (laughs) microbes from you selfishly. Right. Um, And that is actually a very um, therapeutic thing because it does a couple of things. Number one the 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 contact the interaction is enough even as short as a hug to exchange microbes in a beneficial way and number two it increases oxytocin and oxytocin is going to bring down stress hormones and when you bring down stress hormones you reduce the proliferation of pathogens right and and we've talked about stress let me just hit that real quick here's why stress becomes so devastating to the system there are lots of opportunistic pathogens in your system, both viruses and bacteria, that through the course of evolution have learned that when the host is undergoing stress, the host's immune system is compromised, right? And I'll talk about why the immune system is compromised when we're undergoing stress. But what they've learned is that, hey, this is a quote-unquote opportunity for us to express our virulence factors, right? So there's lots of opportunists in your system that when your stress hormone levels are high, they proliferate to a certain degree until the stress hormones come down, then they kind of go into more dormant state. And then stress hormones go back up, they proliferate again. You, They keep doing that as long as your stress hormone levels keep going up throughout the day or throughout the week. And so every time you, you deal with a, with a bout of stress, it's like taking a little antibiotic because it's creating a disruption in the ecosystem that allows a, uh, an opportunistic pathogen to proliferate. This is why, you know, like people that have cold sores, right, for example, a lot of them will get a cold sore when they're stressed, right? A lot of people get sick when they're stressed, right? If you have Epstein-Barr virus and uh, issues with cytomegalovirus, you'll get the symptoms when you're stressed out. 
all of those organisms are designed by nature to proliferate when you're under stress. Hence, you get sick. Hence, you get the, the symptoms. Hence, the cold sore pops up. Hence, your gut becomes dismantled when you're stressed and so on because these pathogens are proliferating at that time. So what happens is you're undergoing stress the pathogens are increasing in their propensity. When that occurs in the gut, it makes the gut more leaky, right? Because elevation of pathogens, reduction in commensals means the gut's going to become leaky inevitably, which means that toxins like LPS can leak through. Now, when LPS leaks through your lining of your gut, it ends up in circulation and can make its way throughout the body. One of the places it really loves to go to is the brain. And one of the things that occurs when LPS makes its way to the brain is it interferes with serotonin and dopamine binding because it interferes with the receptors of serotonin and dopamine. So you may make enough serotonin or you may make enough dopamine, but you can't utilize it because LPS is interfering with the binding of it, right? So now you start to feel a low mood situation. You start to feel more depressed, more anxious because your happy hormone, your reward centers aren't being fired, right? At the same time, when, uh, when LPS ends up in the brain, it also triggers an inflammatory response because LPS is a toxin. And when your immune system detects the presence of the toxin in your central nervous system, it activates your immune cells, right? Because it goes, hey, our brain might be getting infected. We got to get some immune cells there. So it's going to activate what we call microglia cells or macrophages of the central nervous system, these microglia cells are gonna to go to the region and they're gonna release a lot of inflammatory cytokines to try to recruit more immune cells to the region to try to deal with whatever may be causing the infection. The problem with that is that's exactly what happens when your body goes through the flight or fight response. When you get your HPA activation, your hypothalamus pituitary adrenal activation, your body, uh, elicits the fight or flight response by increasing inflammation in the central nervous system. And it does that in particular because it's trying to get more blood to the brain and blood to the heart and blood to the muscles, right? When you're in fight or flight, the body is going, everything else shuts down. We don't need any other function. We don't need to digest. We don't need to rest. We don't need to repair. We don't need to rejuvenate. What we need to do is get blood to the brain, blood to the heart, and blood to the muscles because we need to fight or flee from that situation, right? The way it gets blood to the brain, the heart, and the muscles is through the immune system. Your central nervous system releases these catecholamines that increase the recruitment of immune cells to the brain, to the heart, to the muscles to release inflammatory cytokines to get blood to the area. So inflammation is the way your body gets blood to the brain, heart, and muscles when you're in the fight or flight response. So if inflammation from the gut is causing the same increase in inflammation in the brain, your body thinks you're undergoing a fight or flight response and you shift to the neurological uh, function where you're now in the sympathetic nervous system, right? So that can occur just from inflammation from the gut or from an ex external stressor that comes in and activates the HPA axis, right? So if you're constantly in that inflamed state, it means that you're constantly in a fight or flight response, right? Your brain finds it very hard to shift from the sympathetic to the parasympathetic. Most people are stuck predominantly in the sympathetic phase throughout the day because A, of HPA activation, and B, because of the leakiness in their gut. And the leakiness in the gut reactivates the HPA axis over and over and over again, even without an external stressor, right? This is why it's so hard for people to get the vagal nerve, uh, the vagus nerve activated to get that vagal tone back to rest, digest, relax, repair, rejuvenate, sleep at night and all that because they're stuck 
in this predominantly sympathetic uh, neurological tone versus trying to be more in the parasympathetic. And it's all due to inflammation. And it's largely based on gut inflammation. That mm. makes sense. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Oh, gosh. <sighs> I have 5 million questions. Um, Quick question, because you triggered something. I've learned that there's actually like an evolutionary reason for hyperpermeability when we're under stress, because we're getting like the glucose, the sodium into the blood and the body. So we can fight or flee. But I suppose the question is like, how long do we spend in that state? So under an acute stressor, can we actually resolve leaky gut? But it's, it's that most people, like you said, are stuck in that sympathetic, like is the gut naturally has the ability to heal itself as long as we can recover? It does. So what you're mentioning is actually a really important note. Um, so yes, from an evolutionary perspective, our gut is supposed to become leaky acutely to drive more flight or fight response, right? To drive more sympathetic activation because that's important for survival. However, your gut is supposed to seal up after a period of time uh, and a relatively short period of time so that you don't have that predominance of HPA activation, right? Whether that happens or not is completely dependent on psychobiotics. This is where psychobiotics come in, right? So cortisol drives the leakiness in the gut. So here's a fascinating thing about cortisol, right? So cortisol is both the on switch for HPA activation and flight or fight response. It's also the off switch, right? So cortisol has a feedback loop to turn off the flight or fight response. So what happens is when you get an external stressor, for example, right, some like a text or tweet, something that annoys us in the morning, right? And, and then our, our HPA axis is activated. It's not a saber-toothed tiger anymore, right? It's like something innocuous and stupid that we that work us up. And so, but our nonetheless physiological response is similar to if a predator was chasing us, right? Biochemically, it's the same things that are being triggered. And so we our HPA axis turns on. So then our adrenals start releasing cortisol. So as you're going escalating through the fight or flight response, cortisol's levels in your body are increasing, right? Your cortisol curve is going up. Now, one of the things that happens with cortisol is part of it gets dumped into the gut. And there's two reasons for that. One is because cortisol makes the gut permeable, right? And so it increases permeability in that period, which means that you get more nutrients coming through, uh, but then you also do get more LPS and inflammatory cytokines coming through, which drive more inflammation. But the other reason cortisol ends up in the gut is because a part of that cortisol is metabolized by microbes in the gut. And the, the byproducts of that metabolization of cortisol go to the kidneys and it turns on sodium and potassium pumps and causes the kidneys to drive more fluid into your circulatory system, thereby increasing pressure. That's how chronic stress increases hypertension, right? We've all known stress increases blood pressure. That's how it does it. It's through cortisol being metabolized in the gut by microbes, and the byproduct of that metabolization activates sodium and potassium pumps in the kidneys to get more water back into the system so that you can get pressure to get more perfusion, right? So your body wants inflammation and increased blood pressure to get blood to the brain, to the heart, and to the muscles. All that's fine if it's happening acutely. So that's one function of cortisol is the blood pressure side of it in the gut. And the second part of it is making the gut leaky. Now, what's supposed to happen in a healthy gut, if you have the right psychobiotic microbes in there, is as soon as cortisol starts to make the gut leaky, it actually shuts down the leakiness of the gut after a short period of time. It reseals the lining of the gut, right? The psychobiotics stop 
the inflammatory cascade that occurs in the lining of the gut, which makes the gut permeable. It stops all of that, and it stops the expression of all the inflammatory cytokines that come from the gut, because you want that for a short period of time, but you don't want it for any longer than you absolutely need to, right? If you don't have that psychobiotic in the gut, that leakiness continues, and it continuously reactivates the HPA axis. The other problem with the leakiness is that leakiness and the increase in IL-6 as a result of leakiness actually turns down the expression of something called glucocorticoid receptors. Now, glucocorticoid receptors are the receptors that cortisol finally binds to that turns off this whole system. That's why I mentioned cortisol is also the off switch, right? This is how your body can go through a cortisol curve and then cortisol comes back down, right? If you're measuring it, in a in a 24 hour clock in your in your circulation cortisol goes up and down and up and down and the reason why it comes down is when it hits a peak you get enough cortisol binding glucocorticoid receptors where all of the free cortisol gets bound up and the levels come down and that binding sends a negative feedback signal to the central nervous system that says hey shift back to this parasympathetic right that's your recovery from a stressor Right now, but that's completely dependent on having these microbes in the gut that stop the leakiness in a given amount of time and help expression of glucocorticoid receptors. Because what happens over time if you don't have the psychobiotics in the gut that are doing that for you? What tends to happen is every time you you increase your uh, you experience a bout of stress, your pathogen load goes up right? Which means now you're already more inflammatory because your gut is more generally leaky to begin with. And then some of these pathogens, because they want you to stay in that stress state, can actually produce neurotransmitters to keep you stressed because they want the host to be in that stress trait, like Campylobacter, for example. Campylobacter jejuni is a foodborne illness. And one of the, the profound effects of it is it causes panic in people because it produces a neurotransmitter in your gut that it sends to the brain to create panic. Why does it create panic? It makes your bowel loose and gives you diarrhea. And the diarrhea sloughs off a lot of microbes and gives it more real estate to take over. That's its strategy for clearing the microbes in the, in the region, right? Which is absolutely fascinating. Other pathogens find other ways to make you have diarrhea, but this one uses your central nervous system in your brain. So there are pathogens that increase your stress state as they're proliferating because they want to keep the host in that state. That's a state and the opportunity in which they do the best. And so if you don't have those psychobiotics protecting you through that HPA activation, your gut continues to become leakier and leakier. Every time you encounter a bout of stress externally, that single bout of stress reactivates the HPA axis over and over and over again throughout the day. So you don't have to experience any other external stressor one external stressor will keep you in an elevated sympathetic state throughout the day. At night, you're not sleeping because you're in the sympathetic activation. So you can't recover from any of this. Your gut can't recover. Your central nervous system can't recover. You continue to have inflammation. You wake up the next day even more stressed than you were the previous day and even more damaged than you were the previous day. And the cycle keeps repeating itself, right? And so... That then, after a period of time of being in that basal elevation of anxiety state, starts to trickle into depression because serotonin levels and start to go down in terms of production and then also utilization in the brain because of more LPS 
interfering with serotonin binding, dopamine levels start to go down, both because of production, but also utilization in the brain because the leaky gut is causing disruption in the receptors. If you can't turn on your happy hormone and you can't find reward, uh, that, that endorphin release from reward of doing good things for yourself, you can't find happiness in things, you start to go into depression, right? So stress and anxiety creates this permeable inflammatory response, and then that eventually leads to depression. So anxiety and depression go hand in hand, and gut problems go exactly hand in hand with those. So if you look at IBS people, you take a cohort of IBS people, right? Any age range, upwards of 70 to 80% of those people will have defined anxiety and or depression. Compare that to the same age cohort that doesn't have IBS, it's less than 19%, right? So you are four to five times more likely to have anxiety and depression if you have IBS. And that's because IBS is also a gut brain issue. And this and this pathologies are almost exactly the same. It's that IBS, the inflammatory um, in a pathology that we've talked about, is occurring mostly in the enteric nervous system, which is the nervous system that covers your entire digestive tract. So the enteric nervous system is going nuts and overfiring all the time. And so your your bowels are going through all kinds of cramping and you know hyperactivity and so on. Um, and and so you get the IBS like symptomology, but that same pathology is then present in the brain, and so it goes hand in hand. Of, anxiety, depression, IBS, all together, right? Uh, and this is all because of our decimation of the diversity of microbes in our gut. We're losing these very important commensal psychobiotics that stop this whole cycle. And we no longer have a selection pressure to pick the individuals with those microbes because they're the ones that have the highest fitness to survive, right? We can band-aid ourselves to propagation, to proliferation, to having kids and building families and passing on unhealthy microbiome to the next generation. Um, and the way the psychobiotics were discovered in the first place, that, which is super interesting, is um, this was done in, in Ireland, right? So Ted Dynan, as I mentioned, the, the psychiatrist that did a lot of this work, him and the research groups are basically looking at happy old Irish women uh, who had like a very great disposition, had no history of stress or anxiety, and had slept really well. It doesn't matter how much Guinness they drank. They always slept well. They were always happy, right? And then they compared them to age match individuals that had history of anxiety, sleep disorders, and so on. They looked at their microbiomes, and the only difference that they found was that these individuals who had balanced moods and all that had high levels of a very particular type of organism called bifidal longum, and they termed the strain 1714, right? And what's unique about the 1714, which is different than any other bifidal longums, is a single gene that produces a set of carbohydrates on that organism, right? And those carbohydrates are the molecules that attenuate that whole inflammatory reactivation cycle that we talked about. If you have that organism and you have their carbohydrates in the system, it stops cortisol from making your gut leaky. It increases the expression of the glucocorticoid receptor so you can turn off that, that, uh, that HPA activation. And we also now know that it, it changes brainwave function when you encounter a stressor, right? And this is a magical effect of a probiotic bacteria. We're not exactly sure how it does it. And I'll do this aside because I feel like I've been talking for a long time straight uh, without, without any uh, <laughs> opportunity for, for our wonderful hosts to say anything. But um, but I'll, I'll let me touch on this real quick. So 
Um, we know that you guys know we we operate in both you know um, high frequency and low frequency brain waves. So right, so you've got like beta waves, which are very good high frequency brain waves, and it's very useful when you're working diligently on something or doing art or music and painting or whatever you may be doing that requires high cognitive function. That high frequency brain wave is really productive. If you encounter a stressor during a high frequency brain wave and you manage the stress. When you're in a high frequency brainwave, you're going to screw everything up because you're going to magnify the impact of that stress and your brain is going to go through this loops and spirals of all the ne negative things associated with the stress, right? There's a part of your brain called the coping center, which allows you to cope, rationalize through stressors that's not activated when you're in that high frequency brainwave. And so the individuals that do really well under stress situations are the individuals that can tap into low frequency brainwaves when they un when they encounter a stressor like a theta wave for example and one of the one of the culturally significant ways of trying to achieve that is through meditation right that's the biggest benefit of meditation is the ability to tap into low frequency brainwaves and do it automatically right if you can do it during meditation what you're training your brain is is uh in the in the advent of certain stimuli to switch the brainwave that you're dealing with the with the stimuli with. So if I'm working diligently and I'm connecting the dots and reading a lot of uh, research papers and I get a text or a message that's a stressful message, my brain is supposed to shift into low frequency brainwaves to deal with that message, right? If I stay in high frequency brainwaves, that's going to create a lot of anxiety and stress. In the low frequency brainwave, I can cope with it. The coping centers start to fire up. You rationalize through it and you go, okay, Here's what I'm going to do about it, or I'm not going to worry about it, and then move on, right? And then go back to my work and re-trigger the high-frequency brainwave. What we've been able to show in two published studies is when you take the psychobiotics, right, or if you have them naturally, which unfortunately most people don't, when you encounter a stressor, the psychobiotics create a neurotransmitter trigger to the brain that allows you to shift your brainwave and deal with the stressor in the low-frequency brainwave, which means your cortisol response is attenuated and your perception of the stress is dramatically lower, right? And this is what microbes are doing in your gut for you, which is just mind-boggling. Truly. Really. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I... I'm not a great meditator. I know I shouldn't say that, but like I like to use the brain tap and I'll do the mm -hmm. theta wave training and I get that exact feeling. Like anything that would normally stress me out, I'm like, this is easy. I can just brush it off. I know what to do. Yep. So that's so fascinating, the connection with the psychobiotics and being able to do that. Yeah. And try it. Like, so, um, and I've done the brain tap myself and it's, it's so nice. It, it just, it puts me in such a relaxed state when I've done it. And I don't even really realize it. You know that it that yeah. it's happening. You just kind of like uh, you sit know, there. You just sit there, right? And it, and it's and it's beautiful. I've actually done uh, the uh, NeuroConnect version of that. So there was a period of time, like eight years ago, where all of a sudden, for a number of reasons, I started to experience anxiety for the first time in my life, right? And and being the person that I am, I threw everything at it. I was like, oh my god, this is a very uncomfortable feeling. I don't like it at all. So I'm going to throw everything at it. And and I did. And fortunately, I was able to you know, wrangle that and, and get a hold of it within a few months. Uh, and, and it's been, you know, well-balanced and really nice since then. But one of the things that I did is I did um, neurological training where you go and then they put a thing on your head that measures your brainwave and you watch a movie, right? And, and what tends to happen is the movie starts to get pixelated, 
So you can't see it anymore. And your brain automatically like goes through all these brainwave frequencies to try to figure out what to do about this pixelation, right? You can still hear the movie, but you can't see it anymore. And then what happens is when you're when the cat detects that you're going towards the theta wave, the pixelation goes away and the movie comes back, right? And so over time, as you keep doing that, and these were like 45 minute sessions. So you're sitting just watching a movie, 45 minutes at a time, you do like four or five sessions a week over, over a couple month period. And what it does is it trains your brain that when you, un, when you encounter a problem to switch to the theta wave and that, and then the, it trains your brain that that's a reward and the problem gets resolved. Right. So I found that to be like amazingly beneficial. And then you find out that you can achieve that with a bacteria. And there's a bacteria that evolutionarily provides you that capability. Right. So it's uh, it just it underscores that importance of our evolution with these microbes and preserving them in our system. Yeah. So I'm sure everyone wants to know, like, where do we get those psychobiotics? Is it primarily just the bifidobacterium longum? Are there other strains or other ways that we can encourage the flourishing of this bacteria? Yeah. You know, in, in our research, very, very few people have natural bif longum 1714. And the 1714 is important because um, it, you know, it's substantially equivalent to most bif longums and you'll find lots of bif longums in probiotics, but there's only one gene in the 1714 strain that affords all of this functionality. Right. And if you knock out that one gene, it doesn't do any of these things for stress, mood, sleep or any of that. So it's very important to have the 1714 version of the strain. Uh, Microbiome Labs had launched it as a, in, in a product called Zenbiome. Um, and so that's available out there. It's the most well-studied psychobiotic. Uh, and to me, it's it's one of the most important products that people should be taking because everyone is dealing with some degree of stress, anxiety, neuroinflammation, and so on, right? If we can get that part under control, it, it, it really provides an environment for everything else to start healing much better, right? And, and just imagine, like, all the things that we do uh, in the world of biohacking, for example, right? If you do the red light therapies and the cold exposure and uh, exercise and all these things that we do that's good for ourselves, and then at the same time, you've got this neurological activation, cortisol through the roof, everything is stressing you out, you're not sleeping well, you're negating all the benefits of all those other good choices, Right. And so getting this part under control, the, the central nervous system part under control will really afford you way better outcomes on everything else that you do as well. So to me, that becomes a really, really important part. And I think that's the part where a lot of people kind of falter in their progress where right? they haven't gotten that cortisol neurological component under control. Yeah, for sure. We see a lot of biohackers that are like, like almost like type A with their biohacking, but yeah. not addressing what you just said. So, yeah. And in fact, yeah. you know, biohacking, because, uh, you know, everyone's trying to stoke dopamine in one way or the other. Right. Yeah. Um, we are you either do it through food or scrolling through your thing or drugs or whatever it may be. Um, and so people can become obsessed with all of these practices as well, because you're trying to stoke dopamine out of these things. Right. Some of these things will increase dopamine. Cold water plunging can increase dopamine. Right. So we know some of these things will stoke that. So then they become obsessed and really methodical about all of these practices because they're trying to overcome a discrepancy in this side of it, right? So whereas if they balance their neurological system, not only will they get more benefit out of their behaviors, but they'll have, they'll find themselves to be less uh, obsessive about it and, and even stressed about it. I know, like I know biohackers that 
if they couldn't do their red light treatment that day, they're freaking out about it, you know? And they're like, oh shit, I didn't get to do the red light today. Like, oh my God, you know, oh my God, I forgot to take my NMN today. Oh my God, they're freaking out, right? And they're I'm like, it's okay, you'll be fine. Do it tomorrow, right? Uh, but, But it becomes part of the obsession uh, you know, mentality, right? Because they lean on that so much for that dopamine uh, kick. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Well, you, I mean, you blow my mind every time I get to hear you speak. So I just want to say thank you for sharing so much incredible information with our audience. I am just going to say, we have to have you back on because we have so much more to cover. But I know no, you have to, ready to let you go at yeah. all. But I know you have to run. I want to respect your schedule today. So maybe you can just give our audience just one final piece of advice if there was one thing they could start doing today to optimize yeah. them on this. Um, absolutely. So uh and, and thank you both for this opportunity. I've I've been so excited to be able to talk to both of you. I love the work you do uh and all the education you put out. And I'm super excited to get to see you soon in person, live. Um, and and I think we went over an hour, right? So uh, which is I, I knew we would. I, I don't think I've ever done a podcast less than an hour. So uh yeah. somehow I figured we'd go over an hour. Uh, <laughs> But but it's it's been such a wonderful conversation. Thank you for having me. So one thing um, that that I'd want people to either do or have in their mind is 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 have a significant amount of hope, right? So one of the most prevailing things I see in the world of health and wellness is this loss or lack of hope that the condition that they're dealing with is them, right? They The condition becomes their identity, right? Their, their autoimmune condition, their Hashimoto's, their eczema, whatever it may be, that condition becomes their identity. They are a person dealing with this condition for the rest of their lives. Uh, and know that most of these conditions are an ecological disruption that can be corrected with the right practices and the right approach. And and programs like this provide you with a lot of that kind of knowledge. So don't allow a chronic condition to be your identity. It's just a thing you're currently dealing with and there are ways out of it, right? And so don't allow yourself to lose hope. Don't allow yourself to identify with the condition. You are not that condition. You absolutely have the power and the capability of overcoming that and you will overcome it and envision yourself overcoming it and then take the the poignant steps towards doing that, right? Uh, Don't lose hope at all because we know so much more about the origin of disease now. We can correct so many more things. A lot of it with just some of the simplest things that we talked about today, right? So hope is my message for people that they should have. uh, And especially parents that have kids that have current chronic issues, right? That's probably the most painful thing. It's one one thing to deal with a chronic issue of your own, but seeing it in your kids, whether it's something like, you know, spectrum disorders or allergies or asthma, whatever it may be, you know, skin issues or whatever, know that there's absolute hope that you can improve that. Just educate yourself to programs like this and you'll have the tools. Mm, Beautiful advice. Yeah. Oh, this is such a pleasure. I already have a list of questions for the next time, but super excited (laughs) to see you at Berkman soon. And we're just so grateful. Thank you for spending this time with us. It has been my pleasure. um, And I look forward to the number, uh, the part number two. Uh, We have to do it. We have too much more to talk about. So it's endless. Yeah. Well, thank you again so much. Thank you. And thanks everyone for tuning in. We will see you next time. Love this episode of the Biohacker Babes podcast? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. We truly appreciate your support. Until then, happy biohacking.
This podcast offers health, fitness, and nutritional information and is designed for educational purposes only. You should not rely on this information as a substitute for, nor does it replace professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you have any concerns or questions about your health, you should always consult with a physician or other healthcare professional.